church wasn't called to be a business. The church was not called to be successful. The church was called to be faithful. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Word Processing's Cover to Cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to grow not only in our understanding of them individually, but also in our understanding of how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. And today we come to the first of what are commonly referred to as the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy. It's short, but by no means does its brevity dampen its importance nor its significance. It is a jam-packed little letter, and to help us unpack at least parts of it, we welcome to the podcast Dr. Michael Easley. Dr. Easley's ministry has spanned over four decades. He is the former president of the Moody Bible Institute and is the current president and host of Michael Easley in Context, a ministry designed to help listeners and readers understand God's word and apply it to their lives, which is perfect because that's exactly what we're going to invite him to help us do today with First Timothy. Dr. Easley, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to help us. Thank you, Dr. Boyd. It's a treat to be with you. <laughs> well, let's start here. When we come to the book of First Timothy, Dr. Easley, where do we find ourselves in the story of scripture and how does it relate to the other books in the New Testament? In other words, you know, what's the context in which First Timothy sits? Right. So we have to go back to Paul's call uh, when he saw and then Paul of Tarsus. And uh, when he comes to Christ in that profound way, we've got this period where he's sort of off grid for a period. And then several years later, uh, we see him making disciples. We don't really learn about that. We, we read it in the book of Acts. And Acts, of course, is going to be first century uh, Christianity. We read about his missionary work in Acts, but we don't really get introduced to Timothy until we have these so-called pastoral letters, as you refer to them. Uh, this is in Ephesus. So Paul is writing uh, uniquely. Timothy is a individual written. He's not writing the church at the Ephesians or the, uh, Corinth. He's writing a person, which is very important. And so he's a younger uh, disciple, and the elder statesman apostle is uh, shepherding him in, in this. In, back to your question, the timeline. So this is pretty early on after the, the first and second missionary journeys. And so they've planted these churches, and he's left the younger Timothy in place to really work with church matters, internal affairs, appointing elders, keeping them on track, and really nothing has changed even to today. Hmm. So now that you've brought us to the edge of this book, the welcome mat of First Timothy, can you give us an outline of the book, maybe from 10,000 feet before we get into some of the details? Is there a discernible structure to it that can help us get our minds around the whole? Well, for Pauline literature, we can always think about be and do. And almost all of his literature is 50-50. It's theology and practical. And so in the, in the first chapter, he's going to lay out sound doctrine. In the second chapter, and I love the fact that he says in chapter 2, verse 1, first of all. Well, he's already written this whole, you know, the way we count them, 20 verses. We put those numbers there. The 20 verses to straighten out the theology. And then in chapter 2, he says, let's talk about prayer, which I find striking because most churches, including ours, we struggle with this idea of prayer, whether it's personal or corporate. And he says, you need to understand the role of theology and doctrine, but now you have to understand the role of prayer and how God uses that. And then we get into very practical issues of women and men and elders and overseers. And again, he circles back to false teaching because some of these fold together. We've got this subtext going on in both First and Second Timothy, and there's some theories about the older uh, men giving him trouble. And some believe Paul uh, Timothy was kind of uh, leaning back and not being very disciplined. I have a little different view on that. But the point
point was he was fighting some older men. And we can talk about that more toward the end of the, of the little letter. But by the end of it, it's very practical. It's about dealing with widows, about how you prescribe and teach, which, by the way, for our listeners, when Paul uses these pastoral letters, prescribe and teach and be on guard and pay attention, and I've entrusted these things to you and pointing out these things to you, you can't miss the instructive elder statesman apostle teaching. In fact, I wrote in my Bible some time ago, uh, the, the title of this book is Paul's Teaching Timothy to Teach Others. Mm-hmm. That's the bottom line. He's saying, how do you shepherd these churches that have started to have trouble? And I'm not there to help you. You mentioned this relationship between the be and the do, the what is and what we ought to do, the doctrine and devotion type of relationship there. I'm wondering if you could say a word about how those two interact. Why is it important to know the first and to build the second on top of the first? And yeah. what are the troubles we get into when we put the cart before the horse, so to speak? Well, this is the best question uh, any of us can ask. And you know, sound doctrine is the solution to false teaching, period. Uh, if we don't have the right teaching, we're always going to get astray. A Navy man told me many, many years ago, uh, and I always had to think about how to say it because I bungle it. It was uh, theory without practice is dangerous. Practice without theory is deadly. Mm-hmm. I might have that flipped even now. But the point being, if you don't have the first part right, it doesn't matter when you go out to practice because you could kill somebody. And so theologically, we have to know what the truth is before we jump to applying it. And this, I would say today, Josiah, is perhaps the biggest struggle in most churches. We're feeling driven, not theologically driven. How I feel, my passions, my wants, my desires, my longings, the whole identity language, who am I? Um, That's all secondary. We need to ask and answer, what is God's word? What is truth? What is sound doctrine? And then our behavior, right, should follow our teaching. Uh, Paul says in Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2, you know, to think not so as you ought to think, but to have sound judgment as God has allowed to each a measure of faith. And those first three verses talk about thinking correctly. So the, the sum is, you know, until you know the, the being part, the theological part, your doing doesn't matter. Right. Now, old school churches were stuck on the being part. They were very, you know, deep teaching and theologically oriented, and that's good, but they didn't do much. And so now we see kind of a pendulum. The church does a lot without any theological mooring. It's very clear that Paul's ministry and yours, I'm sure, is modeled after bringing those two things together, right? The being and the doing. They are both important, but they have to go in a particular order, modeled by Paul and taken up by ministries such as your own. Exactly. Well, let's go back to the being part in this first chapter that you talked about in a moment ago. It's very clear as you start to read First Timothy that Paul thinks very highly of the person work of Christ, just by the way he writes about him. Uh, could you maybe comment on Paul's Christology and how that undergirds the entire letter, its contents, encouragements, and rebukes? Interesting you bring that up because when I take notes in my Bible, I will use the theta or the key, whatever, or HS for Holy Spirit. And almost all of his letters save one. The Christology is so heavy in the opening verses, again, the way we enumerate these verses. But, I mean, it's almost every sentence, Christ Jesus, the Savior, Christ Jesus, um, the grace and Father, God our Father, Christ Jesus our Lord. And actually, it's fairly short in First Timothy. So he's beginning with this doctrine of your Christology must precede your theology. So if you don't know who the person and work of Christ is, then your theology will be off as well. 
I often say, Josiah, that when we talk about Christ, we should always say the person and the work because he is the Godhead. He is part of the Godhead, or even that's difficult to say. He's one of the Godhead. We fumble with the word personalities and part of for obvious reasons. But as the Trinitarian doctrine, uh, if we don't know who he is, then we don't understand what he does. What he does, as he says in John, I only do that which is pleasing to the Father. I only do what the Father tells me to do in some translations. So our Christology is the baseline. Mm-hmm. Remember the what would Jesus do, bracelets and bangles and stuff. I always thought it should be what would Jesus think? Mm-hmm. Because we begin with the mind of Christ before we look at the practice. And again, Paul, I think, continues that supernaturally, yeah. that your theological footing. And as he goes on in chapter one, um, and again, if you study the book, you'll find a lot of people have different opinions about the, the theme of this book. I'm not alone, but it's a minority view. I think verse five is the purpose of the letter. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And that theme will come up several times in this letter. Uh, the goal of our teaching. That's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. It's love. Now we have to understand how he uses love, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. It's all three of those. Oftentimes that first verb is, let's just say, the lead verb and other things, participles that will follow are explaining that primary term. And my, my thesis is, and I could be wrong, but I think what he's saying, the goal of our instruction is love. What's love? It's from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And you'll see that again later on in the letter. And I think you'd agree, correct me if I'm wrong, but that goal of our instruction, that is really built upon a high view of Christ, like Paul has demonstrated here. And the higher our view of Christ, the more accurate our view of Christ, the more all-consuming Christ is in our lives, the more likely we are to have this instruction of love, et cetera. Do you have any practical words on how we can, as believers, grow in our appreciation, our love of Christ, like Paul models here? Now, I, I can't remember the quote verbatim, but Alexander White said, uh, the closer I walk with Christ, the more of my sin I see. Yeah. Something to that effect. And that was very helpful for me in my own mm. spiritual life, because we, we tend to be, don't do these things, you know, don't, don't sin. These things are egregious and obvious. And as opposed to not sinning, walk really closely to Christ. And I use this, this uh, illustration. It's God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. That apart from God's word, God's spirit, we're submitting to him to control us, and God's people to shape that theology, uh, we're going to limp. So if, if I'm in, in exposed to God's word on a daily basis, hopefully, I'm asking God's spirit to control me, to help me resist temptation, but more to say yes to Christ than no to sin. And I think for many Christians that are caught up in sexual addictions or uh, with pornography or substance abuse or maybe just lust, what is it, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the boastful part of life, all of our sins fall into those categories. And if we stop, do just I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to do that today. Well, say yes to Christ. Say yes to following him. Say yes to you know, thinking of this companion, quote unquote, who loves you and me who wants me to be more like him, as opposed to saying, you know, don't go out in the street and your children and stay on the sidewalk. You can ride anywhere on the sidewalk. Don't run the street. You'll get hit by a car is a message of importance, but stay on the sidewalk is also helpful. And I think Christians need to learn to stay on the sidewalk, not 
expose himself to danger and then try not to get hurt. As you're speaking, I can't help but think of that passage in Hebrews 12 of running the race set before us, locking our eyes on Jesus and throwing off the things that entangle us and trip us up. But our eyes never leave the author and finisher of our faith. He is the end goal, right? And the fuel for that race. Exactly. Exactly. Keep your eyes on the prize. That's right. Well, how about let's move beyond chapter one now to the doing part, more of the practical outworking of this high Christology and the truth pumping through our veins. As it's been pointed out by others, 1 Timothy really addresses the conduct of the church and the conduct of church leaders more specifically. I want to start with the former. What does Paul instruct Timothy regarding the church as a whole, Dr. Easley? What are they up against at this time? How does he caution, exhort, and correct the people of God in Ephesus and by extension us today? Let me back up just a moment and point out some of these verbs quickly. In first, in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Verse 5, the goal of our instruction, we drop down to verse 11, uh, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. Uh, we jump over to verse 15, a trustworthy statement. Um, and then verse 18, all in chapter 1. This command I entrust to you. And then he introduces a phrase that we all love, but typically misuse, fight the good fight. And so he, he's laid this, this foundation of this is our sound doctrine. Then again, chapter two, first of all, I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. And we miss the purpose clause so that why should we pray for those people? so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable inside of our God and Savior. So we've gone from this baseline Christology to, now you understand how you live in a world, I mean, could this be more appropriate, uh, how, how things have crumbled in our culture and our world around the, around the globe? I mean, uh, it's been months since Afghanistan, but we see all kinds of things falling apart around us, the economy, inflation health issues and we get all swirled around the reason we pray for this paul tells timothy is we lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity and that's good and again i think sometimes we fight the right, wrong fight but anyway continuing with your question from then he's going to jump to this he's going to obviously talk about the sufficiency of what christ did in chapter 2 verse 6 who gave himself a ransom for all and uh, you and others may have a different opinion. I hold to what's called unlimited atonement, that Christ's death was sufficient for all who will come to salvation. And I think that's a good illustrative verse of that. He gave himself a ransom for all. And then he says, now, by the way, this was my job. I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And you'll notice the first person pronouns jump out in these two verses in chapter two, verses seven and eight. I was appointed a preacher and teacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray. So he's bookended that prayer. First of all, you need to pray about these things. And now he says, let me tell you why. Because <laughs> this was my job. I was appointed to do such. I'll stop there and let you circle back with the question because I could just keep prattling, Josiah. <laughs> no, and as you've been talking, more questions come to mind. So you mentioned in verse two that the goal is to lead this tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I can't think of something more opposite than what the culture is telling us to live. 
be brash, be out there, make a name for yourself. And yet the call for the Christian is one of tranquility. And at times it almost seems unassuming and just godliness, just dignity, the, the faithfulness to God is the goal. Is it not? Is that not opposite to what we're being called to do? Well, certainly uh, social media and the way our culture has uh, devolved, in my opinion, to knee-jerk responses and uh, accusatory ad hominem arguments, meaning we attack people, not the issue. Um, Our culture has changed quite a bit in the last, let's say, eight to 10 years. And in my lifetime, people say, it's never been this bad. Well, pre-Civil War in the United States, it was worse. You know, during during World War II, when Hitler is allying forces to, to, to kill all the Jews, it was a little different than today. Now, that's not to minimize some of the vitriol we have in our world. Now, at the same time, there are individuals who are going to be, and I want to use the word carefully, called or wired or pulled into uh, being used in a, a powerful, vocal, public ways. But let's go back in time. Context is king. Paul's telling the younger Timothy of the churches we planted, and, and, and remember, Ephesus for all intents and purposes, the second to Rome. It's huge. If you've not been to Ephesus, the, the Ephesus dig is larger than any dig in Israel. Um, if you go to Israel and you see Bet Shan, it's one of the largest digs. Uh, Ephesus is about eight times larger than Bet Shan. You could spend days just walking around what's been excavated. And of course, you remember this is where Paul's almost stoned to death. When he's, you know, he's about to go into the amphitheater and he's prevented from doing that. So Ephesus would be the Washington, D.C. of the day. And they had the largest library in the world at that time. It was an intelligentsia. The culture was very polytheistic. Uh, we've got this Artemis figure. that's a goddess that they worship. And, and so he's writing to Timothy, who's planted churches in Ephesus, probably more than one. They're probably home churches. And he's telling them. Uh, you can't fix all that. That's not your fight right now. Uh, yes, there are going to be Christian Roman soldiers, and they have jobs to do. But Timothy, your job is this theological foundation, and then pray. Pray for people in authority, people in power. And you, the reason you pray for that is so they're going to be civil, quote unquote. What a neat word. They're going to be civil so that we as Christians can live a tranquil and peaceful life with all dignity, and that's a good thing. So long answer to your question, but I do think, um, you know, I, I try to encourage our church to not stay off social media, but to take it small doses, because the knee-jerk responses to things that are posted typically are uninformed and ill-advised, and you're not going to change anybody's opinion by what you post or how you respond. To this. I, I mean, I get in these Twitter debates just with things that are about the Bible or something I put up as I said, that's interesting. And people go off on me. You know, they don't have, they don't have much of a life. I hate to say it that way. If they're going to live on a social media account and knee jerk every time they see something that liking thing. And there's been books written on what we're doing to our poor children, our teenagers and, and middle school kids have a whole different world to fight than we did. So all that to say, yeah, we need to reel it back. God's word, God's spirit, God's people. What's your sphere of influence? You know, are you living the Christian life? Um, when we started Stonebridge a little over three years ago, uh, I've never heard of a church doing this. I'm sure some have, but we had three primary criteria, exposition, discipleship, and prayer. And the reason we chose prayer was people don't pray. They don't know how to pray. 
They pray silly things. They pray the same thing over and over and over again. We're praying to the God of the universe. Why would we pray the same thing every time we sat down for dinner? And Paul gives clear instruction here. First of all, I want you to pray. So in, in asking the God of the universe, worshiping him, adoring him, confessing to him, lamenting to him, you'll never waste time in prayer. You'll never waste time in the word. And so Christians that are more and more granted to God's word and God, by God's spirit are going to do better, right, in the culture than trying to joust these dragons. It seems we get pulled into fights that we don't necessarily need to be involved in. My old pastor, one that you filled the pulpit for, used to say, you don't wrestle with pigs because you both end up dirty and the pig liked it. And we sometimes get pulled into these wrestling matches with the world and end up stinking when really, like Paul is calling Timothy here, not circle the wagons, but remember your circle of influence. Remember what you're called to do, right? Live a tranquil life. Uh, be content with just being faithful where I've placed you. And that's a hard thing. Why is that so hard, Dr. Easley, for us to just be content with where the Lord has put us? You know, our hearts are sinful. We're, we're selfish people. We want what we want. And we live in a culture, uh, Cindy and I used to speak at conferences with Family Life for almost, no, it was over 15 years. And um, I, I remember we used this illustration about what media had done to us. And this is 25, 30 years ago. And we would talk about, you know, have it your way, the hamburger, have it your way, uh, you want coffee in my cup, and how, how language from an advertising standpoint was all about I, me, my. That has become so hardwired in the Western mindset. It's all about me. And uh, we can look back at the so-called greatest generation, which, by the by, Tom Brokaw's book is brilliant because he just interviews people who lived through World War II, and you'll find three things of the, that generation, at least in North America, you'll find that when the country called, they said yes, they sacrificed without, talk, without complaining, and they never talked about themselves. Mm. How different have we become today? Mm. We complain about everything. We don't believe or trust our country, and that may be a good reason for that, and we talk about ourselves all the time. Mm. So there's been a complete reversal in less than 40 years. And um, I think the satiation of materialism and consumerism has eclipsed our spiritual life. And my creature comforts are more important than my spiritual comfort in Christ. And it's a problem. And this is why churches need men and women who will disciple and help others to get their nose in the book and not in the, you know, TikTok or Instagram or Twitter or whatever you like to use. It almost seems that there's a, a trust issue here too. I'm not sure if I totally trust the Lord that the means he's given us to accomplish his ends yeah. are enough. I should probably help him out with these creative <laughs> ways of getting his work done rather than what you just said, exposition, discipleship, and prayer. Is that not exactly what we're called to do as a church? You know, it, it's, I have friends that, and I went to seminary with them that written books on vision and they're real clever and real successful guys. And I always smile and I go, you know, all I need is the great commission, and the great commandment. That's all I need for the local church. I don't have to go to the mountaintop and write a book on how to make a vision. I don't, and, and what has happened, and I don't know about in Canada, but what's happened in North America, the church has become a business model. And there was a definitive time in the 80s when churches started looking to businesses, how to succeed, PL. Um, and I went to some of these conferences. I, I read 
I probably have 25 Josie Bass books on my shelf that were business books at the time. Good to great, all these kind of things, you know. And undoubtedly, there's some helpful principles in there. I'm not throwing them out. The church wasn't called to be a business. The church was not called to be successful. The church was called to be faithful. And I think we're, we're lulled into it. Again, when you go to Africa, for example, the Christian has none of the things we have. And I would submit most of the believers in Nigeria, for example, have a, a more quality, a better relationship with Christ. They trust Christ more because they got no props. They have no health care. They have no Social Security. They have no benefits. They have no retirement account. They literally live hand to mouth. Some have a little money to live in the big cities, but not like America. And uh, what, what I don't know, if you add Canada and North America, I think you have about 3.4% of the population of the globe. So our perspectives have gotten so you know wonky because we live in this bitter, bigger, better, newer, more uh, world. And listen, I like my air conditioning. I like my newer car. You know, I like my creature comforts. But somewhere in there is the pull back to your satisfaction will only be in Christ Jesus. It won't be in these things that we try to satiate our problems with. Mm-hmm. But that's our job, right? We're, we're to lead and teach and encourage and cajole and <laughs> help people say, look, this is not all there is. And Christ is eternal. He's the sovereign, reigning, creator, sustainer of all the universe. He's going to be around a lot longer than who lives in the White House or Russia or China or Afghanistan. And he is not walking heaven's floor, wringing his hands, worrying about the world. Um, He's concerned for his believers. He's concerned that none perish. And uh, that's our mission. That's our vision, Mm -hmm. not some of the other good things that come along. When you boil it down to what the church is called to do, we articulate a little different at our assembly here, but very similar lines. We say that we are called to exalt Christ, worship. We are called to edify the believers, and we are called to evangelize the lost. That's it. And the first two happen primarily, but not exclusively when we're gathered. And the last one happens primarily when we leave, when we go out of the walls, when we scatter into the world, into our communities, into our circles of influence. But I love how here in 1 Timothy, Paul is bringing Timothy back down to those main things. First of all, like you said in chapter two, verse one, and he calls him to pray. We can't do any of those things. We can't worship, edify, evangelize without the power of God pumping through our veins and through our community. So I just love how he brings it back down to the power of prayer in the body of Christ. Yes, 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 yes. And then interestingly, he makes it from our reading standard, a pretty hard turn in verse nine. He talks about verse eight, men praying. And then verse nine, likewise, women. And of course, in our culture, when you differentiate between the sexes, you're going to get all kinds of comments and criticism and flack, but he's going to incidentally talk about roles that will then, I think, come to fruition later in chapter three when he establishes the qualifications for the office of elder and um, and then later deacon. But it's an interesting foundation if we go back to Christology, theology. By the way, pray, because you can't do this in the flesh. And now let's talk about the structure of the local assemblies. And I just think, you know, these pastorals, when I was young and the first church I served in Texas, I often, I don't want to sound pretentious, but first and second Timothy discipled me because, uh, you know, I was in a small church. I was the only full-time pastor uh, on staff. And, um, you know, you can go, you know, befriend other, you know, 
seminary grads and whatnot, pastors, but I spent a lot of time in First and Second Timothy. And much of my thinking about the local church, and I, I believe in God's kindness, that's where it be began. And that's where it kind of hardwired in me is these books, so-called pastorals, are called that for a reason. Mm -hmm. And if a person is a pastor of a local assembly, a church, whatever you designate it as such, you will never waste time in these pastoral letters. Well, following your lead, let's make that transition from Paul's words about the church as a whole to the leaders of the church. In chapter three, Paul outlines the qualifications for church elders and deacons. I'm wondering if you could help us, Dr. Easley, understand the God-given role church leaders are called to fill and how every member of a particular assembly is blessed when the leadership is both qualified and functioning as they're called to function. Great question. Um, I love talking about these terms. So we have two in the New Testament. We have episkopos, which is what Paul uses here in chapter three, verse two, uh, one and two. First of all, it, it, we need to comment about that. It's a trustworthy statement. Uh, I try to more and more, uh, Josiah, because our culture doesn't understand language, no way we use words. So I try to think, how can we hear that the way they heard it? And, you know, I say, you can bank on this. You can count on this. This is a non-negotiable. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man we can talk about that, aspires to the office, that's so important, we're going to talk about office of overseer, and then he's going to get the qualifications in verse two and following. So that's the word episkopos, so we have episkopos, and if you know episcopal churches, um, you have a bishop, that's where they get the word. Uh, skopos is looking, epi is a preposition above looking, overseer. The other word we have is presbyteros, which you can hear presbyterian in, and presbyteros is the word that meant elder or older. Don't want to differentiate them too much, but I think we miss if we don't do a little differentiation. The overseer was a bishop. He was one who oversaw the flock. The elder idea was someone that was mature. So you put them together, and they are somewhat interchangeable. The qualifications are striking. And uh, I remember hearing um, Dr. Hendricks many years ago in seminary talk about when Jethro told Moses to pick these men so he wouldn't wear himself out, that was probably the, the seeds of the synagogue model. And so synagogues had to have a certain number of people before you could have a Torah and before you could have a synagogue. And so now we've translated that into the local church. Folks don't realize, or maybe they do, in Acts, Paul's first stop was where? The synagogue in the city. And he, why? Because that's, he was a Jew and he went to, uh, to preach and teach about the Messiah who'd come to his Jewish people. And then when he's kicked out, he goes next door metaphorically or literally sometimes and starts church. Before you could have that synagogue, you had to have that core of leaders and that transferred over into the local church. So Paul, who's a Jew's Jew, and a, we call him a completed Jew, and he's teaching Timothy, which interesting is a half Jew, as you well know. Uh, he's teaching him, okay, you have to have these leaders. So another way of saying it very simply is, as the elders go, so goes the church. And if you don't have men of caliber and qualifications like this above reproach, again, my argument is that's the primary participle. What does above reproach look like? Husband and one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine. I love the King James Version. It says, one who does not sit long beside his wine, uh, pugnacious, gentle, peaceable, uh, free from the love of money, 
manage his own household wealth, keeping his children under control. And then this great parentheses, you know, essentially saying if he can't lead his home, what good is he going to be in a local church, basically? Not a new convert, a good reputation outside the church. That's fascinating. So we've got this list, and of course, we'll have other longer lists as well. We can go to, you know, put them all together. But basically, you're looking at a person, and I would summarize it. You can stamp the word example on his forehead to say he is living a good Christian life. And by God's grace and God's spirit, he's trying to be this kind of a buffer push person. That's who you want leading. So, I mean, think of, think of going into court with a righteous judge that's able to discern between defendant and plaintiff, that's able to discern right from wrong, and that judge always knows what's right. Wouldn't we want that judge if we were the one that was falsely accused or we were defending our, our or we were hurt, you know, suing someone who hurt us? Or, we want a judge to do the right thing. Well, you want leaders who are above approach so that they can oversee and shepherd God's people. They're older and wiser. They've lived a little bit. They've raised a teenager or two, let's say. Uh, they've been to, to, through some problems with their kids. And now they've got the experience of life. And they can, yeah, my wife and I've had lots of fights. Yeah, we've had trouble with our kids. Yeah, we had trouble with one of our sons-in-law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we can get through this together. So it's real common sense. I think we overwork it sometimes. But these men who would be the office, so go back to the argument of First Timothy, our Christology is in place. What we believe is important. Now, uh, let's talk about prayer. <laughs> you need to pray through these things, Timothy, because this is hard work, Timothy. Now let's talk about these overseers. And again, in the backdrop are these elders that I think are giving him a hard time. And they're older than him, and he's younger. And so what do young men do around older men that can be a little bit ornery? You step back. You don't want to fight them. And I think that's Paul's injunction. I think that's the, the sort of the subtext behind the book is, you know, get some courage, Timothy. Step up. And we can talk about how he teaches him to do that, which is brilliant at the end. But um, anyway, I'm prattling again, Josiah. But I, the overseer and deacon offices were critical. And I think most churches today have some iteration of them. They may call them trustees or a session or whatever. But um, th this is the formula that does not change. And we understand, and maybe you're on the same page, correct me if I'm wrong, but we understand that deacons, as he goes on to describe, are basically assistants to the elders. We understand that they are not necessarily elders in training, although they might be. They're not necessarily uh, the ones who handle the finances and the, right. the repairs of the church building only. They are assistants. They are doing ministry work. They are assistants to the elders. I think we have gotten there historically as church... If you go back and if you were to write a statement of faith for your church today, a brand new one, what would you first do? Look what other churches have written. And I think as local church doctrines and statement of faith have emerged, we talk about that they're assistance to the elders. And I don't think that's wrong. I just don't think the text says that precisely. If I look at the role of deacon, number one, the word is the same word that Jesus uses in Mark when he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. It's the same exact word. To, to give his life a ransom. So you're looking for elders who are like this. Likewise, the people who serve in the church, this is what they should look like. Mm -hmm. And again, I think we overwork the text sometimes. Let's be accurate. What does it say? You've done this, I'm sure. You take a piece of paper and write out all the qualifications of elder and deacon side by side. There's a longer list, but there's one 
difference that stands out. And that's that phrase, able to teach. So in my understanding of the New Testament, the overseer, presbyteros, episcopos, was not necessarily a pastor teacher, but they were able to teach. So we've got a small group in your church, mm -hmm. and you've got a person in there, and they're saying, well, you know, my church I used to go to, we have this, and it's some wonky theology. You know, I won't name any. They got some real goofy idea. And now people are going, well, is that true? Is that true? And then look into the elder. And the elder has the wisdom and maturity and ability to say, that's really interesting. Um, that's not what we happen to hold at our church. And we don't pick a fight about it, but we say, no, we don't hold that. For example, I'll use it in our, in our world. Uh, we're a cessationist church. We don't believe the sign gifts still exist. A person who speaks in tongues or prayer language, I'm not going to you know, kick them out of the church, tell them they're wrong or a heretic, but I will tell them we don't believe that at Stonebridge. And if, you, if that's really important to you, then you need to find a church that supports that. Don't come and try to change a church, just like I wouldn't go to a church that held those ideas and try to change them to become cessationists. Yeah. So an elder is the one who can shepherd the flock, guarding them against false or misleading teaching. The deacon then was the substructure, and some go back to Acts chapter 6. I'm 50-50 on that, whether that's the beginning. I don't think it is, because Stephen preached one of the finest sermons on the planet and was stoned to death, so he was certainly able to teach. Uh, but the point was there were people being overlooked and maligned, and so the apostles said, look, find some what? People who are choice servants. And you know that word all through the New Testament. And Paul likes to use it with compound words about serving others. So simply said, these two offices are not giftings. Pastor teacher is a gifting. An elder or a deacon is an office. Uh, a pastor teacher should be an elder. And it's nice if an elder has the gift of pastor teacher, but those aren't required. But I think these two offices are the foundational structure. So we've got the theology. We've got the importance of prayer. And now he's talking about how you do church. You need a leadership core that's strong, that's got good reputation. They're above approach. And then going forward, as you handle problems, which is the next chapter, you're going to have trouble. Well, if you got these things in line, you're better positioned to deal when the false teaching and trouble comes. Before we get into some of those problems that they're facing, as you described the elders and deacons to us just a moment ago, I can't help but be struck by how opposite that is to what you were describing before in North America with the CEO model in the church. This top-down person behind the big desk, yeah. governing, making the big decisions for an organization, where it almost seems inverted. The church is the opposite, where the pastors, teachers, deacons, elders, as they follow he who himself said, I did not come to be served, but to serve as we model ourselves after him, we should be underneath the flock, lifting them up to be all that God has called them to be. It's just the exact opposite. It is. And it's, it can be heartbreaking with some of these churches that are empires of people. Um, I have a, a number of friends in the Baptist churches that they use the first person pronoun, my church, and they're huge churches. And I love them. And I know exactly what they mean. But when I hear that, I hear my church. Now, if I'm a member of you know Grace Bible Church or Grace Baptist Church, and I say my church, that's one thing. But when the pastor says that, that's a different pronoun. So I've tried to encourage younger pastors in particular never to use that pronoun when you talk about a church. It's Christ Church. It's a church where we serve. It's not my church. That said, God uses flawed people. 
And so we have some of these, they used to call them mega churches. In recent years, they call them super churches. They have these super churches that have 20, 30,000 people in, in, in uh, multiple locations and small groups and millions of dollars in their budget. Great, great, great. If it's built around a personality cult, it's, it's dangerous. And um, most of those don't end well. Not all but most, and I've lived long enough to watch these super churches, and many of them are my friends, and I've, I've, I've run the risk to say, have you thought about transition? And that's not a happy conversation with most of these people. Uh, they built it. They were there 30, 40 years. I do understand that, but I think that's where I got in the way of this is about serving Christ. So yes, you're correct. It is inverted. It's sad. But God still uses flawed people. How many people have come to Christ in really wonky churches? So, you know, I have to kind of throw my hands up and say, um, I wish it weren't so. But probably the, the real inverse of that is that he would use the likes of you and me. <laughs> He's, that's hitting a little too close to home there. <laughs> okay, so we've got this doctrinally sound built upon a strong view of Christ, prayer-soaked, rightly structured church, and they're about to hit some major turbulence that Paul warns them about. What is Paul warning Timothy is coming on the horizon to get ready for? So in chapter four, we, we have, and it's a bit of a mystery, and, and there are uh, commentators that hold opinions on this. This is one where I say, I don't know what I don't know. Uh, but he says, the Spirit explicitly says, in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And by means, and I think this is the key term here, hypocrisy of liars, hypocrisies, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. They forbid marriage, advocate abstaining from certain foods, etc. So we don't know exactly what's going on there. And there are some theories that I don't think are really helpful to, to dive into. I think the principle of what he's saying is, False teaching is going to come. Deceitful spirits are going to be around. Doctrines that are going to be demonic are around. In your own neck of the woods, the Toronto blessing is a great illustration of was this false teaching? Was this heresy? I mean, laughter is one thing. Barking dogs is another. Uh, at some point, you have to say, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what that is, but it seems to me that's probably deceitful. That's probably, you know, at least if it's not deceitful spirits and doctrinal demons, it's certainly false teaching. And so we don't want to run around pointing the finger and playing in you know, Holy Spirit. But the good news about reading this for me, Josiah, is nothing's new. Nothing is new. Prosperity theology has been the bane of the evangelical church for the past 30 years in America. And these super churches with health and wealth, uh, I mean, there's, there's some, I won't name them, but there's some huge ones our, our, our listeners will know. And, and I want to say, take that, quote, theology, close quote, and go to India or go to Africa or go to China. And if you can make that theology, quote, work in India or China or Africa, if you give 10, you're going to get 100 fold. If you believe this is going to happen, you know, if, if you can pull that off in a country where it doesn't have the capitalistic, materialistic resources we have, then, then we might have a different discussion. It's false theology. It's false teaching. So I read this in the first century where the elder statesman Apostle Paul is telling one of his primary disciple-making pastors, you're going to have trouble. The good news is 
you and I are prepared for this because we have a sound doctrine, hopefully. We have good men in the office of elder. We have a, a foundation. By the way, we didn't talk about plurality. I think it's important to have, you know, that, that, that inverted, you mentioned the, the CEO, basically. Uh, he's only as good as he's good. Uh, but you got to have people around you to tell you the, the truth. So anyway, um, yes, th these problems are going to come. And then he transitions in verse six in pointing out these things to the brethren. Now, there's a lot of discussion, again, in the scholarly commentator realm about what things is he talking about? Is he talking about what preceded it, the antecedent, chapter four, verses one, two, three, and four? Or is he talking about what's to come? And I don't know that I can you know, give you a bulldogmatic statement on that. I think he's talking about the first four verses, five verses. And then he says, now, in pointing out these things, you'll be a good servant, constantly nourished on the words of faith and sound doctrine. We're back to theology. We're back to theology. So, Timothy, the way you fight the hypocrisy of liars, the way you fight deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, is you've got to have a steady diet of the word of God, nourished on the words of God and sound doctrine. And we're back to square one. Mm -hmm. You've kind of already mentioned this a little bit, but let's say there are people listening to this. They're not elders. They're not deacons, Joe and Jane Christian, and they're reading through their Bible and they're coming to this book of the Bible. They're listening to this discussion and they say, I don't know what's false teaching. What's not. I don't know what's doctrine of demons and what's not. Could you give them a Dr. Michael Easley cheat sheet? What should they do? How can they discern false teaching from, from right teaching? And if they see false teaching, what do they do about it? Well, first of all, it's the old counterfeit, the, you know, counterfeit story. How do you know what a counterfeit bill is? Do you study counterfeit bills or do you study in America, do you study the U.S. dollar or the $20 bill, the $100 bill? You need to know the real deal. So number, first and foremost, your time in the word is going to be the best guardrail. Yeah. Uh, secondly, new and novel teaching. Um, when I was uh, at a church uh, some time ago, they got into uh, I'll just name it Alan Hirsch's uh, books. And I don't know Alan Hirsch. I read his books. Alan Hirsch creates an entire new nomenclature of language to talk about the local church. It may be all right. It may be fine. But when I read it and was going through it, I went, you know, this is moving enough away from clear teaching. Uh, he may not be wrong or an error. I happen to think he's confusing. But it, it, it shouldn't be confusing. It should be clear. And if you have to have a new or novel approach to something, that to me, that's not a yellow flag. That's a red flag. Mm. So, you know, knowing the true item, knowing the word. Secondly, beware of new and novel teaching. And then third, um, you know, that's where God's word, God's spirit, God's people come into play. Yeah. If I'm around a body of Christ and I'm, you know, I'm involved in a church that's solid, not perfect, but they're solid. Then I'm able to say, hey, I read this book on such and such. And it seems a little wonky. Well, you can do two things. Yeah, it's wonky, or you can read it and talk about it. You probably waste time reading and talking about it, but be that as it may, uh, sometimes you know, I'm glad for the Ron Rhodes of the world. I don't know if you know Ron Rhodes. Ron Rhodes is a great apologetics guy. I call him the apologetics guy for every man because he writes for like a 12th grade mind. You can read his books and get the point. You know, you don't have to have a seminary degree. And I love the way he writes in, in such truncated fashion about five things about Jehovah's Witness or five things about Mormons or whatever. And you can go, oh, that's where we have some differences. So if you're really intrigued by some of these other teachings, a guy like Ron Rhodes has written, I think, 60 books now. 
is a great resource to take a look at. But back to your question, avoid the counterfeit, spend time on the real deal, the real bill, and watch out for new and novel ideas. That's great. Well, time is flying. I have a couple of wrapping up questions to ask you, Dr. Easley. First, what would you say is the main thrust of this book? I know we've only been through the first four chapters, but if you were looked at the whole, what would you say is the main thrust? Why is this book important? Why would God preserve it for us? I'm going to go back to instruct and teach and prescribe what's entrusted to you, point out these things, pay attention to. And let me land with, it's it's one of my favorite passages in this little book of First Timothy, and it's in um, chapter four, let no one look down on your youthfulness, chapter four, verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but in your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of all who believe. I love that passage because when you look at what he accomplished here, your speech is what you say, your conduct is what you do, your love is what you show, your faith is what you believe, and your purity is what you intend. If you wanna be an example to the block, Timothy, if you want people to look at your life kind of like the elder qualifications, in your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself a tupos, a type, example on your forehead. So when I look at Timothy, uh, what's his intention? What does he believe? What does he do? What does he say? Uh, that's true for every Christian. That I don't have to be an elder or Timothy in your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. So I go back to the instruction and emphasis of both Timothy letters prescribe, teach, and trust, point these things out. You'll be a good and faithful servant if you do this. We are the recipients. We're down the chain. So Jesus, through Paul, talking to Timothy, and we get to read what Jesus told Paul to tell Timothy, which is just as relevant as the day it was written. In your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to all. So, you know, whether you're a small group leader, you're a women's Bible study teacher, BSF, precept, whatever you're into, you'll never go wrong on those five things. And I think it's a really good, now we're back to the do. <laughs> this is who, who we be, who we, what we believe theologically. This is what we do pragmatically. That's great. Well, during your years of study, Dr. Easley, how has God used this particular book, First Timothy, in your life to teach, reprove, correct, or train you in righteousness? Well, as I said earlier, Josiah is, you know, this this really did disciple me, First and Second Timothy um, and Titus during my first probably six, seven years of the first church I served. We were almost 10 years in Texas, in Grand Prairie, Texas, and uh, a smaller church that was a delight to be there. And they were kind to give me a job, but I didn't know what I didn't know. And so these pastoral letters, for whatever reason, they just struck struck a chord with me. And I would say, uh, not to sound pretentious or, or, or egotistical in any way, this has kind of guided me the almost well, 40 years and counting now. has been, um, I go back to these as sort of the benchmark of, you, know, you, you and I are in a unique profession. We're weird. Um, uh, Ed Bloom made a comment years ago. You probably never had Ed as a professor, but Dr. Bloom taught at Dallas. And photographic memory, 13 languages fluently, scary smart. And Dr. Bloom made the analogy one time. He said, like it or not, uh, gentlemen, when you walk in the room, the priest came in. And I've never forgotten that, being raised Catholic, number one. But he said, you're the holy man. You're the man in the cloth. You bring God with you. Like it or not, like it or not, that's how people perceive you. People in ministry are weird. You know, you're this man of the cloth nonsense. And then he went on to say, be aware of that. 
be aware of it. And I think his implication was, I know it was, you can use that for good. You're, you're bringing the conversation to talk about Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, whenever I go to a hospital, even in these COVID days or visit someone, I'm a pastor carrying this Bible into a hospital is more uh, disturbing than carrying a revolver on my hip. People are freaked out when you walk around a big Bible in the hospital. And so how we uh, view our role as pastors, for those of us who are pastors, I think it's an exquisite calling. It's a weird job. And you have to keep those intentions, the way the world sees us and the way God might, if he's kind, choose to use us. Well, thanks for the pep talk to end our conversation. That was great. I feel really <laughs> affirmed. <laughs> Get yourself a collar, Josiah. You know, Get those Nehru black collars, you know. <laughs> it is a high calling indeed. And yet, as you describe that, I do think, and it's true for ministers of the gospel, what you just described is so true. And yet, for every believer, as a kingdom of priests, as we go out into the world, we do have that stamp on our head, or at least we hope we do, right? Where we are ambassadors for Christ, being his witnesses in a very lost world. Whether we're carrying a big black Bible or whatnot, people will know probably, and that is alarming to many people. And so we need to read books like First Timothy and take the charges like you described for us today and take them seriously. And yes. with a sense of thanksgiving that we get to represent our savior to the world not only an obligation but a thrilling liberty and a sense of um, joy that comes with that there's two things that are eternal people and the word of god and uh the thing i try to encourage young pastors when you choose to go into ministry you are leveraging the two eternal things you're using god's word to help people help them come to christ help them grow as disciples everything else is going to be burned your works, my works, wealth, empires, dynasties, uh, castles, moats, they're all going to be burned. But what will last are people and the word of God. So uh, we're, we're, we're working, quote unquote, for the long game. Mm. And it's not about us. That's the other refreshing and liberating part. I don't have to be successful. I just have to be faithful. Well, amen. And thanks again for all your time you've given us today, Dr. Easley, and helping us understand First Timothy a little bit better. It's so much appreciated. Blessings. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.